0: I had my life to live over again, I would truly take you for my love again. everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And this week I'm examining 2011's incredible What If tale. One that King has posed in many of his stories leading up to this moment. And that's, what if you could go back in time and stop JFK's assassination? Would you do it? Well here King masterfully explores this concept. But the greatest part of this reading experience is not the time travel or the race against time or the huge seismic event that Jake, Jake Epping races towards. What makes this novel so great is that it's really only a what if time travel tale on its surface. What 112263 really is is Stephen King's greatest love story. One that happens to be set against the backdrop of JFK's impending death. I think that when we all sat down to first read this novel, we expected the, you know, fish out of water, the man out of time element. What King does is completely play against those expectations. He doesn't build up or play too heavily into the science of the time travel. In fact, as I'll get to later, there's a distinct lack of science when it comes to the time travel. How King handles the time travel, it might be a criticism to others, but the fairy tale quality is definitely a strength, in my opinion. And as for the fish out of water, again, King subverts our expectations and has Jake immediately fall in love with the past. King zigs where we expect him to zag, and as soon as George, Jake's alter ego in the past, meets Sadie, King elevates what has been until this point a very good novel into one of his best of all time. On top of that, King indulges in what is probably the most unexpected and greatest easter egg with an extended cameo of some of his most beloved characters of all time. All of this, everything that I've talked about, combined with the rich detail of historical facts, makes for, like I said, an all-timer. Now, when this novel came out, I didn't know what to expect. As you'll know from previous episodes, at this point, um, when 2011 rolls along, you know, my days of being a Stephen King um, fanatic, they're long gone, my obsession is over. So I picked up this book as a fan, without much expectation or anticipation, and I just fell in love with it. My immediate response was a warmth and affection that I hadn't felt towards one of his books in quite some time, and wasn't sure if that warmth would carry over upon the reread. And to make a long story short, yeah, it definitely did, and I'm very excited to talk about this book with you today um and as i record this it's uh the the 28th of december this should be coming out in early january and um presidents day it will be coming up soon and that's when the the hulu series adaptation of 112263 comes out now when i first heard that they were that hulu was doing a uh 112263 adaptation starring james franco i was v- I, I, okay, so the word wasn't hesitant. I mean I, I have the proof and my tweets and my Facebook page that I was completely against it. Um, I thought that he was definitely the wrong person to play Jake, but I don't know, I don't know from what the the two teasers at this point have shown, I, I think they might be nailing it. Now I, I could be wrong because teasers can be very, very misleading. But from what I have seen, it, it it looks very intriguing, and just from a very superficial point of view, the just the look of it, I'm very intrigued by the look. The colors look so crisp. The 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 design um, and the style of uh, the late '50s, early '60s, just looks looks on point. Um, it just look it from what I've seen in the very 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 brief trailers or teasers that they've released it just looks very very good and I like James Franco as an actor I like him in his comedies um, so when he was first cast in this role I, I immediately thought of what this love story means and that isn't to say that he can't pull it off it's just what he has shown of us um, means that he's kind of fighting an uphill battle in, in terms of our perception towards him I would say um, but does that? I don't think that that means that he doesn't have it in him. I think that comedic actors tend to also make for the, the best dramatic actors at well, as well. And, mm. you know, I mean, James Franco was certainly someone that has the artistic merit. He has the want. I mean, this is someone that is just constantly, constantly um, embracing different artistic um, endeavors, the likes of which his peers are not. So I'm never quite sure... When it comes to james franco you know how far he's going with something you know i mean he was on a soap opera for a while and i just think that that was an andy kaufman-esque uh stunt on his part that he never really played up too much he let it just kind of speak for himself and so stuff like that i really really like about him and um so i'm i'm very intrigued i'm very intrigued at him playing the part of jake and i hope that he knocks it out of the ballpark because he clearly needs to sell this and he and i don't know the name of the woman that's playing sadie but i mean seriously guys they need to have chemistry um because this is it's really all about them and it's the romance The, the the romantic plot is is the a plot and that needs to work and if it doesn't i think that it's just gonna crumble all around the story but I'm I'm excited I'm excited for it. I can't wait to see what happens and the, the good news is that we don't have to wait too long and I currently don't have a Hulu account I have a Amazon Prime I have a Netflix I have um, spent way too much on cable but looks like I'll probably have to get a Hulu account guys and um, I don't know what's going to look like but um, you know I, I think that if if I have the time to do so I would love to do a weekly 1122 63 television review and that would be the the first that um that i would do for something like that and and that would be that would be pretty cool so um that actually will be coming out around the time i will be finishing up the reread of of the stephen king cast because as i record this um i'm about halfway through dr sleep and then I've just read Bizarre of Bad Dreams. Um, as you know, I've I've already you know read Revival. I reviewed that last year. So what that means is I just have to read Joyland, which is very very short, and then Mr. Mercedes and Finders Keepers, and then I'm all caught up. Um, I think there's some cleanup that I have to do. I have to read Blaze. I have to read The Colorado Kid. Um, but I mean, in terms of like the the bulk, I'm I'm I would say I'm ninety eight percent done. So when the reviews all come out they'll be finishing up in February or so so um that that's perfect timing because that that answers the question of what next for the Stephen King cast so if that works out that that's awesome uh, awesome for all of us it will be it'll be a fun experiment for me and hopefully everyone out there will be able to get something out of it but now we're we're kinda getting ahead of ourselves in the meantime let's let's stick with our, our regular routine um, before I get into review I wanna read a listener email and this is from Dave Dave writes I just landed on your cast As I need to listen to something during my night job, the funny part was I was just flipping through my copy of The Dead Zone just a night or so prior. Naturally, that was the first two novel and movie that I checked out. Like yourself, I'm just about positive that I was also in sixth grade when a friend I had over asked if I have ever heard of a book called Night Shift. It had just come out in paperback and I had heard vague rumors of a new somewhat local to my town in Massachusetts author named Stephen King. Also similar was my need to devour whatever else he put out prior to that. And I did. So keep up the good work and I'll leave you with this. I read Salem's Lot in junior high and never forgot the impact that it had on my love of fiction. I later had a son and he came home from junior high with a copy of the same paperback just as a version of myself did 20 years prior. One of my greatest joys of fatherhood was sitting with him, chewing up time, just going over the characters, stories, and meanings. It was timeless, just like King's fiction. Take care. Dave from Stoneham, Mass. So, Dave, thank you. this, This is why I ask everyone to write in, because everybody has a story. And there's some of you out there that have been able to write in that really are able to share something that transcends just sitting and, and reading a book, it means something. It connects to our lives in, in deep and profound ways. And this, this is a good one. It's <laughs> a great story. Um, just thank you so much for sharing. Um, and I just want to read one more. Um, this is from Lori. And, um, oh, no, sorry, this is not from Lori. <laughs> this is from, um, this is from uh, Gabriel um, Brie. And she writes, Hi, I've been listening to your podcast for the last two months, I'm sorry, last month, and I can only say wow. Seriously, your podcast is like an academic review of the works of Stephen King, who I started reading as a kid, probably officially buying my first used Stephen King book when I was in middle school. You discuss things and plot points I never thought of or acknowledged, and your calm voice is a great way to relax at the end of the day while pondering what it represents, the surprise ending of The Mist, etc., I hope you do more reviews of the individual stories in King's anthologies, especially the one entitled Grey Matter. I think that involves an alcoholic, abusive father that gets a bad batch of beer, as well as the Creepshow movies and comic book slash graphic novel. Your show has also encouraged me to start reading again, something that slowed down immensely after age 30, not sure why, and to return to my writing, which I've also neglected. I bought the anniversary edition of King's on writing, as I think it will help me to get more focused about my writing. Okay, I don't want to ramble, so I will end this email by saying that your podcast is without a doubt one of the best I've ever listened to, and I think that you could do an amazing journal-level review of King's work. You are so talented in this topic. Keep up the amazing work, and please don't stop providing shows. For some reason... Two good horror slash comedy podcasts have stopped recording routinely this month, and it's really a bit sad. Your show helps all of King fans to geek out about his work, which can be hard to do amongst those that just don't understand King or his writing. I hope you and your family had a great Christmas and a very happy new year. Um, so, Gabrielle, thank you for writing in. Um, and, and please, I, I know that during the the analyses of, of these stories... Um, it's kind of made some people think about going back and doing their writing. So, you know, I mean, I think that keep Stephen King would tell you to to definitely write. If that's what you want to do, then then definitely write. I think that that, that you should um, if that's if that's where your heart lies. So thank you for all of the kind words. Um, thank you for writing in um, to both you and Dave for writing in. And for anyone else that has not written in, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. And uh, if you haven't done so, head on over to iTunes and leave a review, because that would uh, that would help me out greatly. Uh, I currently have uh, 51, which is awesome, uh, and I, I really really appreciate it, guys. Uh, so the more you're able to um, get on over there and, and write a review, the the more it helps me out. So with all of that said, what I'm going to do now, I am going to um, read the Wikipedia summary of 112263, so I have a basis upon which I can build my analysis. Wikipedia summary, Jake Epping is a recently divorced high school English teacher in Lisbon Falls, Maine earning extra money teaching a GED class. Epping gives an assignment to his adult students asking them to write about a day that changed their lives. One of his students, a learning impaired janitor named Henry Dunning submits an assignment describing the night his alcoholic father murdered his mother and siblings with a hammer and injured Harry causing him brain damage. The story emotionally affects Jake and the two become friends after Harry earns his GED. Two years later in June 2011, Jake stops by a local diner and speaks with the proprietor, Al, who asks Jake to meet him at his diner the next day. When Jake arrives, he is shocked to see that Al seems to have aged years since the previous day. Al explains that he is dying and that his appearance is attributable to his having time traveled and lived for years in the past. Al's method of time travel is a time portal he discovered in his diner's pantry, which he used to transport himself to 1958. Doubting Al's story at first, Jake travels through the portal where he encounters an addled wino who Al has dubbed the Yellow Card Man due to a color of a card on the man's hat. Jake spends an hour in 1958 before returning to the present, after which Al explains that he's figured out the basics of how the portal functions. Every journey through the portal transports the Traveler to September 9th, 1958 at precisely 11.58 AM. No matter how long someone stays in the past, hours, days, weeks, or years, only two minutes elapse in 2011. Past events can be changed, however. Subsequent use of the portal resets the timeline and nullifies all changes made on the previous excursion. The obdurate past throws up obstacles to prevent history from being changed. Such resistance is proportional to the magnitude of the change. Because the portal gives one the ability to alter the present day by changing an event in the past, Al reveals that he concocted a plan to prevent John F. Kennedy's assassination, hoping that doing so would change history for the better, as he attributes many bad things that happened in the world to events that would not have occurred had JFK lived. He spent four years in the past after entering the portal a previous night, traveling to Dallas, Texas to track Lee Harvey Oswald, plotting to kill the would-be assassin during his attempted murder of General Edwin Walker. His delay was due to the fact that he wanted to be absolutely sure that Oswald was a killer and would act alone. Al developed cancer, so he had to give up his mission, knowing he would not live long enough to complete it. He recruits a reluctant Jake to complete it instead. As an experiment. Jake travels back to 1958 to save Harry's family, who will be killed by his father Frank Dunning on Halloween night. Despite many obstacles, he succeeds in saving all but one of Harry's siblings, then returns to 2011 hopeful he improved Harry's life, only to learn that his actions led to Harry dying in Vietnam. While Jake is still trying to process this information, Al commits suicide, forcing Jake to act immediately before the death is known and the diner is sealed. With no preparation, Jake re-enters the portal and discovers that the yellow card man has cut his own throat and the yellow card is now black. He ignores it and kills Frank ahead of Frank's murderous rampage. After resolving one of Al's other missions, preventing a hunter from accidentally shooting a little girl, Jake makes his way first to Florida, then to Texas to wait for Oswald's arrival. Jake spends several years establishing his identity in the late 1950s, but becomes to suspect history harmonizes. He keeps coming into contact with people of the same name, with similar events. He suspects saving one life might result in another person dying in their stead, for example. He begins to stalk Oswald, renting apartments near Oswald's apartments. He begins to wonder if Oswald's only friend in Dallas may somehow be involved in the assassination and thus hesitates to kill Oswald ahead of time. He thinks uh, his friend is a CIA resource who is supposed to keep an eye on Oswald, but may also be egging Oswald on to kill first General Walker, then JFK. Jake resolves to wait until the Walker attempted assassination before killing Oswald. However, he is unable to learn certain facts and presented, prevented from accessing several opportunities to kill Oswald. Finally, the situation comes down to November 22, 1963. With everything going wrong in order to prevent him from his from his, from his date his date with date with destiny, he is only able to reach Oswald before the fateful moment when Kennedy's motorcade drives through Dealey Plaza. Nevertheless, he successfully prevents Oswald from shooting JFK. In a rage, Oswald fires at Jake, ultimately killing Jake's fiance Sadie, who came to help him. Oswald is then killed by outside fire. Jake spends a few dizzying days in Dallas, and investigations prove that he was not Oswald's accomplice. He has conversations with both the President and the First Lady. He is numb to all of it because he has already resolved to travel to 2011 and then back to 1958 again in order to save Sadie. But as he leaves Dallas, he learns that there has been a massive earthquake in California in which thousands have died. He realizes that it's a direct result of his actions. When he gets to the portal, he finds that the degenerate yellow card man has been replaced with the respectable looking um, green card man. The man explains that traveling through the portal does not change the past, it creates new strings of the past, stretching the bonds of reality. The color of the card indicates the health of the system. Guarding the portal is difficult because he has to keep myriad realities in his mind at all times. Eventually this drives the Guardian to mental illness and or alcoholism like the yellow card man. He begs Jake to set things right again. Jake steps back through the portal, eager to see what a world without the Kennedy assassination has become discovers it's a nuclear winter scarred landscape. He meets a familiar looking man who turns out to be Harry Dunning whose life he saved long ago. Not a brain damaged janitor in this incarcer- in- incarnation, he is a wheelchair bound survivor of the nuclear nightmare the world is currently experiencing. Furthermore, there are frequent massive earthquakes everywhere. Harry tells Jake a concise history of the world between 1963 and 2011 and it's not pretty. Jake quickly returns to 1958 to find that the green card man is much worse for wear. He tells Jake he must now go back to 2011 and ensure that the portal is closed. Instead, Jake goes to a hotel and contemplates returning to Texas to Sadie. Ultimately, he returns to his own time, having changed nothing. Looking up old records, he learns that Sadie survived an attack by her ex-husband, an attack she had only survived before by rescuing her. He goes back to Jody, where Sadie is in her ni- in her 80s. Sorry, he goes back to Jody, where Sadie is in her 80s. The two share a dance, and as I read this, guys, I mean this Wikipedia summary. I mean this this is what I was saying before. Um, this book fools you. The premise fools you into thinking it's really about the time travel, uh, and it's all about JFK. And this Wikipedia summary perpetuates uh, that illusion, and it completely skips out on what the most important aspect here is, and that's the relationship between Jake and and Sadie, um, it it just does not capture what the truth of this novel is, and I just find that fascinating. Okay guys, uh, so now it is time for my analysis. So right away we learn that it's a first person perspective, a great choice that will allow King to ground. The fantastical nature of the book and never let it get away from him. 112263, despite its big, big idea and broad concept, is a deeply personal story that works as well as it does because of the decision to place us in Jake's head the entire time. We learn about Jake's emotional state of being, and more importantly, the fact that he's divorced. Again, it's King playing up the personal. Second chances will be a reoccurring theme throughout the novel. JFK will have a second chance. But King sets that up, um, what the story is really about here. Jake's love story. And King knows how to hook us, doesn't he? With Jake's tease of the janitor's story, we just need to know more. All the while learning of Jake's character. That he is the emotional robot his ex-wife made him out to be. Part 1, Watershed Moment. King keeps these mysteries coming, though never at the expense of character development or little details, such as the little squiggle at the end of Harry the Janitor's Y, the flirtation between Jake and Gloria, the school's secretary, the lived-in feel of the school itself. And the latest mystery involves Al, the diner owner and time traveler, who begs Jake to become his successor. King teases the time travel with the deterioration of Al, who Jake had seen only 22 hours before, but is now 40 pounds lighter, sickly looking and aged. We need to continue to reading. I'm sorry, we need to continue reading in order to find out exactly what is going on here. So King, again, like I've talked about in previous reviews, he's just great at creating these little hooks. Al starts talking about madness, about walking through a door, and the yellow card man. It all sounds crazy, and it's one of King's most effective openings, right up there with Georgie's death and it, Campion's escape in the pages of The Stand, and the Dome's arrival in Under the Dome. King has been known for his wordiness, but that criticism can't be applied to this novel. For a novel about time travel, it takes only 29 pages before Jake to step foot into the past for the first time, and up until then, it's a mysterious, intriguing story that wasted no time in hooking us. The initial romp through the 1950s feels very Back to the Future. I'll get to the depictions of the past later in the episode, but for now, I'll say that, like Back to the Future, it initially presents the past with a aw shucks quality, which will later be contrasted with the suspicion of Derry when he travels. Again, I'm going to get to that later on. But for his first venture into the past, it's very fun with great descriptions, especially the root beer. Now, I was born in 1981, decades removed from the 50s. I don't know what life was really like in that world, but I do know my sense of taste. It's genius for King to highlight the trip um, to the past by using the senses to make this trip come alive. It enriches something that is truly unfathomable and does wonders in setting the stage for how Jake falls in love with the past. Now here's the deal. Time travel can be very confusing for some people. It's why metaphors and visuals are as important as they are. Take, for instance, Al's explanation of time travel to Jake, which had also been used by Daniel Faraday in Lost before this publication came out, created by Stephen King fans, um, Damon Lindelof and Carlton Cuse. King even gives Lost a shout-out by referring to a fictional sequel of the popular television show, uh, which he calls The Hunted Ones. Anyway, as for the visual, it comes on page 57... And Al says, Sometimes the events that change history are widespread, like heavy, prolonged rains over an entire watershed that can send a river out of its banks. But rivers can flood even on sunny days. All it takes is a heavy, prolonged downpour in one small area of the watershed. There are flash floods in history, too. Want some examples? How about 9-11? Or what about Bush beating Gore in 2000? Um... And King smartly frames why Jake should go into the past to stop Kennedy's assassination. It's a time travel proposal that we've all heard about before, but aside from the fact that he was a leader with promise, do we ever stop to think about the ripple effect? Thankfully, King does, and shows the major moments that would be changed following the death of JFK in a history lesson of the 20th century. So he gives us this... Um, over a few pages, beginning on page 61 of the hardcover edition. Oh, I'm talking about a lot more than that, because this ain't some butterfly in China, buddy. I'm also talking about saving RFK's life, because if John lives in Dallas, Robert probably doesn't run for president in 1968. The country wouldn't have been ready to replace one Kennedy with another. You don't know that for sure. No, but listen. Do you think that if you save John Kennedy's life, his brother, Robert, is still at the Ambassador Hotel at 12.15 in the morning on June 5th, 1968? And even if he is, that Sirhan, Sirhan is still working the kitchen. Maybe, but the chances have to be over. Have to be. Af- sorry. Maybe, but the chances have to be awfully small. If you introduced a million variables into equation, of course the answer was going to change. Or what about Martin Luther King? Is he still in Memphis in April of 1968? Even if he is, is he still standing on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel at exactly the right time for James Earl Ray to shoot him? What do you think? If the butterfly theory is right, probably not. That's what I think, too. And if MLK lives, the race riots that followed his death won't happen. Maybe Fred Hampton doesn't get shot in Chicago. Who? He ignored me. Maybe there's no Symbianese Liberation Army, no SLA, no Patty Hearst kidnapping, no Patty Hearst kidnapping, a small but maybe significant reduction in black fear among middle-class whites. You're losing me, remember I was an English major. I'm losing you because you know more about the Civil War in the 19th century than you do about the one that ripped this country apart after the Kennedy assassination in Dallas. If I asked you who started The Graduate, I'm sure you could tell me. But if I asked you to tell me who Lee Oswald tried to assassinate only a few months before gunning Kennedy down, you'd go, huh? Because somehow all this stuff has gotten lost. Oswald tried to kill someone before Kennedy. This was news to me, but most of my knowledge of the Kennedy assassination came from an Oliver Stone movie. In any case, Al didn't answer. Al was on a roll. Or what about Vietnam? Johnson was the one who started all that insane escalation. Kennedy was a cold warrior, no doubt about it, but Johnson took it to the next level. He had the same, my balls are bigger than yours complex that W showed off when he stood in front of the cameras and said, bring it on. Kennedy might have changed his mind. Johnson and Nixon were capable of that. Thanks to them, we lost almost 60,000 American soldiers in Nam. The Vietnamese North and South lost millions. Is the Butcher Bill that high if Kennedy doesn't die in Dallas? I don't know, and neither do you, Al. That's true, but I've become quite the student of recent American history. I think that the chances of improving things by saving him are very good. And really, there's no downside. If things turn to shit, you can just take it all back. Easy as erasing a dirty word off a chalkboard. Now, King has laid down the rules for time travel, and now he lays down the rules of his character's actions. If you or I went back in time knowing what we know, why wouldn't we just kill Oswald before he gets a chance to shoot JFK? It's reasonable. However, King knows that you're going to think that. So his explanation is that Al, before having to return, needed to make sure that Oswald had been acting alone. Now, the logic doesn't entirely hold up. Honestly, uh, just take your chance and kill the man. All you need to do is head back to the future. If the world has changed radically, then JFK survived because the man who had shot him was dead. If JFK is still dead in the present, that means that Oswald was probably not acting alone. So again, the fact that there's a reset button nullifies the conflict of the mission itself. King must know this, and I'll talk about how he raises the stakes later on in this podcast. Al and Jake continue to talk about traveling through time, a conversation which Al reveals... um, that something, whether it be a large force or time itself, actively resists the manipulation of the time travelers. Eventually, well, not really eventually because it happens so quickly, Jake heads into the past to help out Harry the janitor as a child to see the effects of manipulating the past, and the scene between he and Al is powerful. Like I've said, we're less than 100 pages in, and I buy it. The adventure awaits, and I'm in 100%. Part 2. The janitor's father so let's look at the time travel here do you realize what king is doing i don't even know if king is aware of what king is doing the hook of this book is to stop one of the most major events of the 20th century from occurring the death of jfk a president one of the legendary presidents of the united states of america there is your hook it's pretty global pretty macro but king Spence, Just as much time focusing on the life of Harry, the man who grows up to be a janitor. A janitor on one side and a president on the other, and both events have nearly equal importance. Jake heads back into the past and once again encounters the yellow card man, a character placed wisely within the story. He's enough of a mystery, but not too much of a mystery to overshadow the thrust of the novel itself. And then there's the humor. When Jake goes back, the yellow card man screams, F you, Jimla! It's one of those nonsensical king phrases like Booyah Moon from Leesy's story. But for whatever reason, this exclamation really cracked me up. And yes, I know that Jimla winds up having a larger purpose, but that initial introduction to it just tickled my funny bone. As does Jake's interactions immediately upon traveling back into the past. Uh, the second time around feels a lot more like a video game. You know, he's asked to go um, from one character to the next, each one providing a little more information than the last. And before long, he's on his way to Derry, and King remembers what 1950s Dairy is like. He contrasts the natural beauty of the past with the dread-filled city, Um, which is perfectly in line with how it was represented in the pages of It. And King nails it by writing, there was something wrong with that town, and I think that I knew it from the first. Now, I am going to go into much greater detail about Derry in the Easter egg section, but for now, King manages to work in Derry's history and the rules of this novel perfectly. We know that the past makes it difficult to change the present, so it makes perfect sense that Jake would need to find a child immediately following a summer of child murders where the community is wary of strangers. This makes the events of it a specific and natural plot point to this book, and it flows organically from one book to the next. Okay, guys. And then there's the dairy scene. And for those of you who've read this, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm not going to talk about it now. I'm going to talk about it later. But I'll just, you know, whet our appetites and say that it was came out of the blue. So unexpected and hard to read without getting a little teary-eyed at, at what is happening on the page. Anyway, um, after weeks of getting ready... For Halloween, in order to save the Dunning's, Jake realizes what Al had said about the past being obdurate. When on the very night he needs to save his family, he comes down with a 24-hour bug. And then, when waiting for the right moment, he's set upon a man, um, set upon by a man who wants to murder Mr. Dunning because he claims Dunning had murdered his sister. Because King has given the past personality and purpose, it makes every moment loaded with tension when the time comes for jake to make his move king captures the essence of the city perfectly on the other side of the house a car door slammed and rapid footsteps rattled on concrete i remember thinking bar the door mom that's not just your bad tempered husband that's dairy itself coming up the walk this scene guys This scene, it has no business being this tense, and King is able to play within and against our expectations from the essay that adult Harry had written. We think, and Jake thinks, that we can expect what's about to happen, but we cannot prepare ourselves for this at all. It is a gripping, horrific scene that feels very in line with the interludes from It, where King would give us vignettes on the horrors of Derry, Maine. This scene works as well as it does because Derry is one of the most defined characters that he's ever written. We got to know it intimately in the pages of It. And it's strange to say that we feel right at home with this horrific scene. The fact that it's taking place on Halloween makes it that much better. And you know, despite the fact that he's the master of horror, King has never really incorporated Halloween into his stories. He loves to play with the fall and autumn and the colors and but aside from halloween functioning as a time frame and under the dome it's just not something that he touches on very often which is a huge missed opportunity if you think about it i mean who wouldn't want to see king's definitive halloween tale anyway jake's flee from dairy to the door is wrought with tension when he can't find it there's an immediate lurch in our stomachs We had been so invested in the rules that had been given to us, did King really switch things up on us like that? The answer, of course, is no, but it's a great fake-out for that moment. Part 3, Living in the Past. Jake returns, and King provides more rules to this time travel yarn. First, despite the fact that Jake changed elements of the past... Al's memories are not affected by the changes, and King explains this because of the fact that either he's gone down the rabbit hole so many times or because he's so close to it. More importantly, it's here when Jake gives us the specifics of the past is obdurate theory. The resistance to change is proportional to how much the future might be altered by any given act. And because Jake is able to change the past doesn't mean that he wasn't able to give everyone a happy ending. One moment of pain doesn't negative um, doesn't negate future moments of pain, which he learns when he calls a now-alive Ellie Dunning, only to find that Harry had died in Vietnam. Ellie realizes that she's speaking to the mystery man from Halloween night and rips into him for not being able to save her brother. Harry and the rest of the Dunning family play such a large part of this novel. Not only do they function as Jake's first time-traveling experiment, but more importantly, Harry humanizes Jake's quest. Saving JFK is a big concept with major ramifications. By constantly bringing it back to Harry, he's personalizing time stream changes. Even when he makes the decision to go for it and try and stop Oswald, he does so partially to save Harry, who will die in Vietnam. If JFK is still alive, then there might not be a Vietnam War to die in. When Jake travels back to the past again, he encounters the dead body of the Orange Card Man, an ominous and foreboding visual that casts a pall over the future events of this time-traveling jaunt. King speeds through Jake's second life in Derry, pausing here and there to highlight the changes between the two trips, zeroing in on Jake's gambling, which by its very nature places Jake in a dangerous world, or at least ensures that he will always have one foot in a dangerous world. It's one thing to go back into the past and have to fight against the current of a time stream that doesn't want to be altered. It's another thing to wade into the deeper end where the meaner fish are swimming. Knowing what we know about the past, his involvement in a bedding, um, in bedding uh, should make us uneasy. The past, having been thwarted the last time around, is even more prepared for Jake meddling on his second journey. It punishes him with a debilitating migraine. It nearly kills him by breaking the banister that he's leaning against. His car won't start. His spare tire won't hold air. Despite the fact that he's... That, despite the fact that it's aggressively acting against him, Jake manages to kill Frank Dunning in cold blood, knowing that by simply murdering him ahead of time will save the rest of the family. Shortly after, Jake and King end our time in Derry... And how fitting is it that Jake's final act is to flip off Mr. Keene, the personification of dairy itself. Jake spends some time betting in order to make some money, some time in Florida, and when he heads to Dallas, King knows he has an opportunity to comment upon the Texas Book Depository, which he goes into wonderfully on page 292 to 293. But that brick cube held my gaze, and the windows, especially the one on the right corner of the sixth floor, seemed to be examining me. There was a palpable sense of wrongness about the building. You, if there ever is a you, might scoff at that, calling it nothing but the effect of my unique foreknowledge, but that didn't account for what was really holding me on that bench in spite of the beating heat. What did that was the sense that I had seen the building before, It reminded me of the Kitchener Ironworks in Derry. The book depository wasn't a ruin, but it conveyed the same sense of sentient menace. I remembered coming on that submerged soot-blackened smokestack, lying in the weeds like a giant prehistoric snake dozing in the sun. I remember looking into its dark bore, so large I could have walked into it. And I remember feeling that something was in there, something alive, something that wanted me to walk into it so I could visit maybe for a long, long time. Come on in, the sixth-floor window whispered. Take a look around. The place is empty now. The skeleton crew that works here in the summer has gone home. But if you walk around to the loading dock by the railroad tracks, you'll find an open door. I'm quite sure of it. After all, what is in there to protect? Nothing but schoolbooks. And even all the students they're meant for don't really want them, as you well know, Jake. So come in. Come on up to the sixth floor. In your time, there's a museum here. People come from all over the world, and, one of, and some of them will still weep for the man who was killed and all he might have done. But this is 1960. Kenny's still a senator, and Jake Epping doesn't exist. Only George Amberson exists, a man with a short haircut and a sweaty shirt and a pulled-down tie, and a man of his time, so to speak. So come on up. Are you afraid of ghosts? How can you be when the crime hasn't happened yet? But there were ghosts up there. Maybe not on Magazine Street in New Orleans, but there? Oh, yes. Only I'd never have to face them because I was going to enter the book depository no more than I ventured into that falling smokestack in Derry. Oswald would get his job stacking textbooks just a month or so before the assassination, and waiting that long would be cutting things far too close. Um, So... Jake realizes that he doesn't have to suffocate in Dallas functioning here as Derry's twinner and finds a small town in which to relax while stalking Oswald's movements It's at this moment where King reveals what this book really is It's not a time travel adventure story at all It's simply a story of a man finding himself and falling in love Falling in love with life with his profession and ultimately with Sadie but the life of George Amberson begins when he um, begins substitute teaching and directing the school play. I'll talk about King and teaching later in the podcast, but for now, let's just say that King's tale on um, in this book, he's able to draw from his own past and allow musings on life in a way that he couldn't if this was simply an adventure yarn. When his student, Mike, The football player is um, lamenting the fact that he's being made fun of by his teammates for starring in Of Mice and Men. King writes on page uh, 323, No, I didn't. Husky, almost whispering. He lowered his head because the tears were coming again, and he didn't want me to see them. The coach had called him Clark Gable, and if I called the man on it, he'd claim it was just a joke, a goof, a yuck as if he didn't know the rest of the squad would pick up on it and pile on, as if he didn't know that shit would hurt Mike in a way being called Bohunk Mike never could. Why do people do that to gifted people? Is it jealousy? Fear? Both, maybe. But this kid had the advantage of knowing how good he was, and we both know Coach Borman wasn't really the problem. The only person who could stop Mike from going on stage tomorrow night was Mike. So, I mean, these are the moments that, that... that make the book as special as they did that um just a moment about life and people trying to tear down people who can um the vulnerability within this whole section is it just makes the book what it is and from here on out this is where the book shines and makes it one of the best ones that king has ever written filling up this high school student with enough courage to act in front of an audience is built up with more importance than having to stop oswald And what a commentary that is on our role in life, isn't it? George's time with Mike in this moment is loaded with as much tension and gravitas as the larger scale with the JFK assassination. And its message is that we, all of us, in our own ways can influence the future. We don't need to travel back in time. We can simply live in the moment and help those around us to be their best selves. And he does so on page 324 to 325. I sat down beside him on the couch. There wasn't much room, but I managed. Right then, I wasn't thinking of John Kennedy, Al Templeton, Frank Dunning, or the world I'd come from. Right now, I was thinking of nothing but this big boy and my show. Because at some point, it had become mine. Justice's earliest time, with its party-line telephones and cheap gas, had become mine at that moment, I cared more about Of Mice and Men than I did about Lee Harvey Oswald. But I cared even more about Mike. I took his hand off his mouth, put it on one huge thigh, put my hand on his shoulders, looked into his eyes. Listen to me, I said. Are you listening? Yes, sir. You are not going to fuck it up. Say it. I say it. I'm not going to fuck it up. What you're going to do is amaze them. I promise you that, Mike. Gripping his shoulders tighter, it was like trying to sink my fingers into stones. He could have picked me up and broken me over his knee, but he only sat there looking at me from a pair of eyes that were humble, hopeful, and still rimmed with tears. Do you hear me? I promise. The celebration of the play is a wonderful moment of triumph and it's difficult not to get swept up in the everyday beauty of it. Soon after, Mimi Corcoran offers George a full-time position, and it's here where we first hear of Sadie. It's important to note that the first George hears of Sadie is when a dying Mimi references her and asks George to take the job partially to be friendly to her. George realizes that she's matchmaking here, and this is juxtaposed with Mimi's upcoming wedding and honeymoon and ultimate death. All of this is comprised of joy, hope, and sadness, the cornerstones of life really. So it's no surprise that King decides to begin his greatest love story right here. Jake and Sadie's J- I'm sorry, Jake and Sadie meet at Mimi's wedding. A nice and fun meeting between the two that involves a bit of clumsiness. Uh, and George grabbing a falling Sadie, inadvertently cupping her breast to stop her fall. Now, King doesn't overdo it. They don't burst into the belly-laughing guffaws that you would expect his characters to, and they don't fall in love right then and there. But they do have an unforgettable first meeting, which happens on page 340. Nice to make yours. I think you just saved me from a very nasty accident. Probably I had. Because that was it, you see? Sadie wasn't clumsy. She was accident-prone. It was amusing until you realized what it really was, a kind of haunting she was the girl, she told me later, who got the hem of her dress caught in a door when she and her date arrived at the senior prom. She managed just to tear her skirt right off as they headed for the gym. She was the woman around whom water fountains malfunctioned, giving her a faceful. The woman who was apt to set an entire book of matches on fire when she lit a cigarette, burning her fingers or singeing her hair. The woman whose bra strap broke during the parents' night, who discovered huge runs in her stockings before school assemblies, which she was scheduled to speak. She was careful to mind her head going through doors, as all sensible tall folks learn to be, but people had a tendency to open them incautiously in her face just as she was approaching them. She had been stuck in elevators on three occasions, once for two hours, and the year before in a Savannah department store. The recently installed escalator had gobbled up one of her shoes. Of course I knew none of this. All I knew on that July afternoon was that a good-looking woman with blonde hair and blue eyes had fallen into my arms. Now, you know how King used to give us ridiculously detailed sex scenes? In his later works, he's done so much better, doing well to show us the emotion that goes along with it rather than the physical act itself. Take, for instance, the um, moonlight romance between Paul and his ex-wife in the pages of Duma Key. King captures the emotion, not the act. And here, where Jake's meeting with Sadie includes copying a feel, King writes, But it wasn't just the breast that was nice. It was the weight of her the weight of her in my arms. King knows what he's doing, enough to comment on it as a meat cute but it never feels that artificial. These are two characters who really crackle when they're together, and the build-up to their romance is filled with a magic that we don't get to always see, from the way that her eyes sparkle in the light of a Friday football game to the student's proud exclamation of, Way to go, Mr. A! after George kisses her on the nose. It's all so wholesome and endearing. Part 4, Sadie and the General. The romance continues to blossom with Sadie asking Jake to help her chaperone the Sadie Hawkins dance with her. As Jake points out, he's been Sadie Hawkinsed by Sadie Dunhill. And what are dances for but to fall in love? Jake continues to fall in love with his life as George. I continue to fall in love with this story. And he and Sadie continue to slide into love as they first dance together, surrounded by loving and proud students. After the death of one of the students, King ruminates on what it means to call home. On page 398 to 399. And Jody was good. Good for me. In Derry, I was an outsider, but Jody was home. Here's home smell of the state I'm sorry the smell of sage and the way the hills flush orange with Indian blanket in the summer. the faint taste of tobacco on Sadie's tongue and the squeak of the oiled wood floorboards in my homeroom. Ellie Doherty caring enough to sense a message in the middle of the night perhaps so we could get back to town undiscovered, probably just so we'd know. The nearly suffocating mixture of perfume and deodorant and as Miss Knowles hugged me, Mike putting his arm. The one not buried in a cast around me at the cemetery, then pressing his face against my shoulder until he could get himself under control again. The ugly red slash on Bobby Jill's face is home too, and thinking that unless she had plastic surgery, which her family could not afford, it would leave a scar that would remind her for the rest of her life of how she had seen a boy from just down the road dead at the side of the road, his head mostly torn off his shoulders. Home is the black armband that Sadie wore, that I wore, that the whole faculty wore for a week after. And Al Stevens posting Vince's photo in the window of his diner. And Jimmy Ledoux's tears as he stood up in front of the whole school and dedicated the undefeated season to Vince Knowles. Other things too. People saying howdy on the street. People giving me a wave from their cars. Al Stevens taking Sadie and me to the table. And the back that he had started calling Our table playing cribbage on Friday afternoons in the teacher's room with Danny Laverty for a penny a point, arguing with the elderly Miss Mayer about who gave the better newscast, Chet Hutley or David Brinkley or Walter Cronkite. My street, my shotgun house, getting used to using a typewriter again, having a best girl, and getting S&H green stamps with my groceries and real butter on my movie popcorn home it's watching the moon rise over the open sleeping land and having someone you can call to the window so you can look together home it's where you dance with others and dancing is life ah uh, so king continues to show how heavenly this town is with the school putting on a comedy show staff and students included it's all meant to build up to remind us how special it is in order to establish the stakes which are out front and center when Sadie has had enough of Jake's lack of background, eccentricities, and strange phrases. It's funny that she is on to him because of phrases like, I'm freaking out. Excellent, dude. I've never seen the everyday be the thorn in a time traveler's side uh, just like this. This causes the rift in the relationship between he and Sadie, um, for whose safety he begins to fear, certain that the events of Derry will repay them, replay themselves with Sadie subbing in for Doris Dunning. King then switches gears, and for fans of historical fiction, the nest, this next segment is definitely for you. He gives us dozens and dozens of pages of Jake chronicling the life of Lee Harvey Oswald, leading to a moment of tension when Jake, bugging one of Oswald's rooms, smashes a lamp, lamp accidentally. The big question here is, the question we've all asked ourselves, did Oswald act alone? It's the uncertainty that stops Jake from killing him before the assassination. After dozens of pages, King reunites Sadie and Jake, who, and Sadie nearly dies from a mixture of pills and booze against the backdrop of the Cuban-Bizzle crisis. It's another way to illustrate the importance of what King is focusing on here, the personal over the global. It's a great scene where George has to use his knowledge of the future to convince Sadie that JFK will come through victorious, in the crisis, Jake continues to stalk Oswald, growing paranoid as the clock ticks closer to that fateful day. And then King buckles down and gives us intense anxiety. While preparing to follow Oswald to see if he's alone when attempting to kill the general, he gets a phone call that pours ice water in our veins. Sadie is in danger from her ex husband, who begins to torture her to get Jake's attention. The scene from Derry reenacts itself with a jilted former lover storming into the house to get revenge, with two men bursting into the house from either end to stop him. And after they manage to stop him, Clayton slits his own throat, putting an end to this gruesome scene. Part 5. 11, 22, 63. The time stream knows how to be cruel. It sticks its knife in Jake's life and twists. Not only does it punish Sadie for Jake's meddling, but it punishes her hard. The damage to her face is extensive, and it's cruel that she's collateral damage in the war between Jake and time. Eventually, after Sadie gets past the worst of it, Jake offers to take her somewhere when they'll be able to fix her face, and she point blank asks him if he's from the future. Well then, there it is. It's all out on the table. And so now Sadie is a part of it. The plan is to not only kill Oswald, but then to take Sadie back to the future. And if you think about it, there is no way that this can go well. King is not going to give us two happy endings. Something is going to go badly and horribly wrong. This begins with the ramification of Jake's betting. Just as he had been set upon before, he's set upon again. And it's a harrowing, painful scene to read because of the reality of it. Sometimes you don't need a a clown to be scary. Sometimes you just need goons to want to hurt you. And the resulting beatdown gives the story some last-minute tension as Jake suffers from amnesia temporarily forgetting who he's supposed to assassinate. Now, it's hollow tension, as we know this novel will definitely include a showdown between Oswald and Jake, so it comes as no surprise when his memories return. Jake heads to Dallas without Sadie to keep her out of harm's way, but it doesn't matter because she finds him. Knowing that Sadie is going to be a part of this, it should keep us on edge through the moment itself. We all know... What happens to jfk he's gonna get shot if jake stops it jfk lives it's that easy however sadie is the great question mark we have no idea what sadie's involvement will bring the race to the book depository is full of suspense a masterful ticking clock that ratchets up the tension with each passing page their car breaks the bus they hop onto crashes the driver they get to pull over tries to rob them The car they steal breaks down the depository stairs take a toll on both of them for his injuries and for her smoking habit however there must be a showdown against the backdrop of the assassination and king frames it perfectly on page 743. the sixth floor of the texas school book depository was a shadowy square dotted with islands of stacked book cartons the overhead lights were burning where the floor was being replaced they were off on the side where lee harvey oswald planned to make history in 100 seconds or less seven windows overlooked elm street the five in the middle large and semicircular. the ones on the ends square the sixth floor was gloomy around the stairhead but filled with hazy light in the area overlooking elm street Thanks to the floating sawdust from the floor project, the sunbeams slanting in through the windows looked thick enough to cut. The beam falling through the window at the southeast corner, however, had been blocked off by a stacked barricade of book cartons. The sniper's nest was all the way across the floor from me on a diagonal that ran from the northwest to the southeast. Behind the barricade, in the sunlight, a man with a gun stood at the window. He was stooped, peering out. The window was open. A light breeze was ruffling his hair and the collar of his shirt he began to raise the rifle um, <clears throat> I broke into a shambling run solemning around the stacked cartons digging into my coat pocket for the 38 he turned his head and looked at me eyes wide mouth hung omen for a moment he was just Lee the guy who laughed and played with Junie in the bath, the one who sometimes hugged his wife and kissed her upturned face, and then his thin and somehow prissy mouth wrinkled into a snarl that showed his upper teeth. When that happened, he changed into something monstrous. I doubt you believe that, but I swear that it's true. He stopped being a man and became the demonic ghost that would haunt America from this day on, perverting its power and spoiling its every good intent. Jake manages to save the president's life, but guys, I mean, this is not, this is not a happy ending, um, and it happens quick. Um, my crutch struck a stack of boxes. I tottered to the left, flailing with my gun for balance, but there was no chance of that. For just a moment, I thought of how, on the day I'd met her, Sadie had literally fallen into my arms. I knew what was going to happen. History doesn't repeat itself, but it harmonizes, and what it usually makes is the devil's music. This time, I was the one who stumbled, and that was the crucial difference. I could no longer hear her on the stairs, but I could still hear her rapid footfalls. Sadie, down, I shouted, but it was lost in the bark of Oswald's rifle. I heard the bullet pass above me. I heard her cry out. Then there was more gunfire this time from the outside. The presidential limo had taken off, driving towards the triple underpass at breakneck speed, two couples inside ducking and holding on to each other. But the security car had pulled up on the far side of Elm Street near the Dealey Plaza. The cops on the motorcycles had stopped in the middle of the street, and at least four dozen people were acting as spotters, pointing up at the sixth floor window where a skinny man in a blue shirt was clearly visible. I heard a patter of thumps a sound like hailstones striking mud. Those were the bullets that missed the window and hit the bricks above on either side. Many didn't miss. I saw a Lee's shirt billow out as if a wind had started to blow inside it, a red one that tore holes in the fabric, one above the right nipple, one at the sternum, a third where the navel would be. A fourth tore his neck open. He danced like a doll in the hazy, sawdusty light, and that terrible snarl never left his face. He wasn't a man at the end, I tell you. He was something else. Whatever gets into us when we listen to our worst angels. A bullet banged out one of the overhead lights, shattered the bulb, and set it to swaying. Then a bullet tore off the top of the would-be assassin's head, just as one of Lee's had torn off the top of Kennedy's in the world I'd come from. He collapsed onto his barricade of boxes, sending them tumbling to the floor. Shouts from below, someone yelling, Man down! I saw him go down! Running, ascending footfalls. I sent the thirty-eight spinning towards Lee's body. I had just enough presence of mind to know that I would be badly beaten, perhaps even killed by the men coming up the stairs if they found me with the gun in my hand. I started to get up, but my knee would no longer hold me. That was probably just as well. I might not have been visible from Elm Street, but if I was, they'd open fire on me. So I crawled to where Sadie lay, supporting my weight on my hands and dragging my left leg behind me like an anchor. The front of her blouse was soaked with blood, but I could see the hole. It was dead center in her chest, just above the slope of her breasts. More blood poured from her mouth. She was choking on it. I got into my arms under her and lifted her. Her eyes never left mine. They were brilliant in the hazy gloom. Jake, she rasped. No, honey, don't talk. She took no notice, though. (laughs) When had she ever? Jake, the president. Safe. But I hadn't actually seen him in one piece as Alamo tore away, but I had seen Lee jerk as he fired his only shot at the street, and that was enough for me, and I would have told Sadie he was safe no matter what. Her eyes closed and then opened again. The footfalls were very close now, turning from the fifth floor landing and starting up the final flight. Far below, the crowd was bellowing its excitement and confusion. Jake. What, honey? She smiled. How we danced. When Bonnie Ray and the others arrived, I was sitting on the floor and holding her. They stampeded past me. How many? I don't know. Four, maybe, or eight, or a dozen. I didn't bother to look at them. I held her, rocking her head against my chest, letting her blood soak into my shirt. Dead. My Sadie. She had fallen into the machine after all. I've never been a crying man but almost any man who's lost the woman he loves would, don't you think? Yes, but I didn't, because I knew what had to be done. The Green Card Man The end begins, first with the cleanup after the assassination attempt, where King has fun putting the time traveler against the feds. And as George heads back to Maine to start all over again, we start to grow worried that this entire novel was a great cosmic joke. A major earthquake hits California, a natural disaster that had never occurred before and comes now because of the effects of Jenks' temporal tampering. Now, with about 40 pages left to go, we begin to get answers. At the rabbit hole, Jake talks to the green card man, who explains the mysteries of the door and the card men who seem to guard it. They were like badges worn on people who worked in nuclear power plants, only instead of measuring radiation, the cards monitored what? Sanity? Green, your bag of marbles was full. Yellow, you'd start to lose them. Orange, call for the men in the white coats. And when your card turned black? The green card man was watching me carefully. From across the street, he'd he no older than 30. Over here, he looked closer to 45. Only when he got close enough to look into his eyes, he looked older than the ages and not right in the head. Are you some kind of guardian? Do you guard the rabbit hole? He smiled or tried to. That's what your friend called it. From his pocket, he picked a pack of cigarettes. There was no label on them. That was something I'd never seen, either here or in the land of a go or in the land of a head. Is this the only one? He produced a lighter, cupped it to keep the wind from blowing the flame out, and then set the fire to the end of his cigarette. The smell was sweet, more like marijuana than tobacco, but it wasn't marijuana. Though he never said it, I believe it was something medicinal, perhaps not so different from my goodies headache powder. There are a few. Think of a glass of ginger ale that's been left out and forgotten. Okay. After two or three days, almost all the carbonation is gone, but there's still a few bubbles left. What you call the rabbit hole isn't a hole at all. It's a bubble. As far as guarding, no. Not really. It'd be nice, but there's very little we could do that wouldn't make things worse. That's the trouble with traveling time, Jimla. My name is Jake. Fine. We do what we do, Jake, to watch. Sometimes we warn, as Kyle tried to warn your friend, the cook. And uh, they have just a, a, a great conversation about the strings and holding reality together and how every trip isn't a complete reset, um, but it leaves a residue and it creates a new string. Um, so, I mean, it's it's the explanation for what I think people that are, are really looking into the plot and, and the, the hook and intent of the novel, that, that time-traveling premise, I think that this is the explanation that, that they've been looking for. So, um, but I mean, with this conversation, even though you get some answers, some of the answers that you get are not what you want to hear because this is where Jake learns that after 700, almost 800 pages, after spending years dedicating his life to trying to stop one of history's largest moments, he discovers that he's just been on a fool's errand. I mean, this is a tragic gut punch for sure. Um... So what happens next, Um, you know, I mean King, I mean, Saving Kennedy suggested a utopia. And instead, when we enter the new 2011, it's been transformed into the worst pop cultural fad of the 2000s, by the way, a, a dystopian future. In this future, he meets a vision of Harry Dunning, a fitting companion at the end of the world. I mean, throughout the novel, King had talked about harmonics. Well, here's one example. It began with their relationship, and it's going to end the same way, too. Through the conversation, we learn that Maine is now part of Canada since 2005. Electricity is only provided three days a week, and earthquakes are ripping apart the earth. The conversation between Harry and Jake is a fun look at an alternate timeline that functions like a dark version of Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire. It must have been fun for King following the logic of the choices that you know um, that he makes here, how one thing causes the next which recognizable political figure will still be around a new timeline, which events will still play out. It's a nightmare situation that has to be set right. He goes back once again, resetting the timeline all over again, and rather than stepping back into his present day for the last time, finally rewriting everything and closing the circle, he panics and runs. He writes down the story, wrestles with the decision to seek out Sadie, and start over with her all over again before realizing that he can't. It's not meant to be. It would only cause time to grow sick. So he heads back to his time. And it's here where King gives us what might be his greatest ending of all time. Jake first hesitantly researches whether Clayton attacked Sadie and discovers that yes, he did, and yes, she survived. From there, he does not look into her life. He's unable to deal with any bad news, but he eventually discovers as the novel rushes towards an all-timer of a bittersweet ending guys that she is still alive around 80 years old but still alive as being given an award for being the citizen of the century jake travels one last time this time in the present to his true home jody texas he's in the audience as the town celebrates the life of its greatest citizen sadie dunhill and with every page closer to the end, it's hard to not start bawling, especially when you realize what Jake has planned. He asked the DJ if he has any big band in his collection. Ooh boy, guys, get ready for the waterworks. And then beginning on page 839, um, heading all the way to the end, King gives us the end of 112263. 63 at ten past eight, Donald plays a slow Alan Jackson tune, even one grown-ups can dance to. Sadie is left alone for the first time since the speechifying ended, and I approach her. My heart beating so hard, it seems to shake my whole body. Ms. Dunhill? She turns, smiling and looking up a little. She's tall, but I'm taller. Always was. Yes? My name is George Amberson. I wanted to tell you how much I admire you and all the good work you've done. Her smile grows a little puzzled. Thank you, sir. I don't recognize you, but the name seems familiar. Are you from Jody? I can no longer travel in time and I certainly can't read minds, but I know what she's thinking just the same. I hear that name in my dreams. I am and I'm not, and before she can pursue it, May I ask what sparked your interest in public service? Her smile is now a lingering ghost around the corners of her mouth. And you want to know because... Was the assassination, the Kennedy assassination? Why, I I guess it was in a way. I like to think I would have gotten involved in the wider world anyway, but I suppose it started there. I left this part of Texas with... her Her left hand rises involuntarily towards her cheek then drops again. Such a scar. Mr. Amberson... Where do I know you from? Because I do know you, I'm sure of it. Can I ask you another question? She looks at me with mounting perplexity. I glance at my watch. 814, almost time. Unless Donald forgets, of course, and I don't think that he will. To quote some old fifties song or another, some things are just meant to be. The Sadie Hawkins dance back in nineteen sixty one. Who'd you get the chaperone with you when Coach Borman's mother broke her hip? Do you recall? Her mouth drops open and slowly closes. The mayor and his wife approach, see us in deep conversation, and veer off. We're in our own little capsule here, just Jake and Sadie, the way it was once upon a time. Don Haggerty, she says. It was like shapping a dance with a village idiot. Mr. Amberson. But before she can finish, Donald Bellingham comes in through the eight tall loudspeakers right on cue. Okay, Jody, here's a blast from the plast, a platter that really matters, only the best, and by request. Then it comes, that smooth brass intro from a long-ago band. Oh my god, in the mood, Sadie says. I used to lindy to this one. I hold out my hand. Come on, let's do this thing. She laughs, shaking her head. My swing dancing days are far behind me, I'm afraid, Mr. Anderson. But you're not too old to waltz. As Don used to say in the old days, out of your seats and onto your feets. And call me George, please. In the street, couples are jitterbugging. A few of them are even trying to lindy hop, but none of them can swing the way that Sadie and I would swing it back in the day, not even close. She takes my hand like a woman in a dream. She is in a dream, and so am I. Like all sweet dreams, it will be brief. But brevity makes sweetness, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. Because when the time is gone, you can never get it back. Party lights hang over the street, yellow and red and green. Sadie stumbles over someone's chair, but I'm ready for this, and catch her easily by the arm. Sorry, clumsy, she says. You always were, Sadie. One of your more endearing traits. Before she can ask about that, I slip my arm around her waist. She slips hers around mine, still looking up at me. The lights skate across her cheeks and shine in her eyes. We clasp hands, fingers folding together naturally, and for me, the years fall away like a coat that's too heavy and too tight. In that moment, I hope one thing above all others. When she was not too busy to find at least one good man, one who disposed of John Clayton's broom once and for all. She speaks in a voice almost too low to be heard over the music, but I hear her, and I always did. Who are you, George? Someone you knew in another life, honey. And the music takes us, the music rolls away the years, and we dance. That ending, guys. That ending. King gets criticized a lot for his endings in case you were unaware, spoiler alert, um, many criticized the stand for lack of action in the final conflict between good and evil and for the long, slow journey back to Boulder. It is notorious for its spider reveal. Uh, a lot of people tune out the dark half for the mystical sparrows, Needful Things for the shadow puppets being used as magic, Insomnia for fighting a catfish mother in a rocking chair, and the fact that the following novels or stories ended fire, Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, Tommy Tommyknockers, Needful Things, Under the Dome and Cell. These are all examples of this. But 112263, and he takes the love story and wraps it in a lovely and heartbreaking bow. Now, about the ending, uh, word on the street is that King revised it um, after his son, author Joe Hill, whose novels Horns and Nosferatu I reviewed in earlier episodes, suggested, I don't know, suggested what? Suggested this ending? If you've read Joe Hill, especially his short stories, it's not hard to believe that this is exactly what he did. Endings can be very difficult to write, but Hill excels at his endings. If writing is like boxing, Many authors uh, win by decision, and by this I mean the fight or the reading experience was so memorable will always declare a victory even though there's no knockout. However, with a Joe Hill book, he always manages to back that story into a corner and deliver a haymaker that results with a knockout. And it's not hard to believe that this ending is inspired by Joe Hill. Okay, before I get into the uh, Stephen Kingisms or the Easter eggs, uh, I just want to talk about romanticizing the past here. Um, so one thing that I can't stand in fiction or in life, um, and that's romanticizing the past. And the 50s and the 60s had been mythologized throughout pop culture, giving us a stylized image of what it was. And this image created from the wholesome family sitcoms of the time and later with Happy Days and from the golden oldies that are listened to fondly um, as one of innocence. and, And all of this is a false representation of the past. Very easy to look back at one's past and talk about how great it was, especially contrasted with the present. Now, while he might not have been around in the 1960s, I see it all the time for the 1980s. I mean, it's all over Facebook. Um, You know, I see these, these memes all the time, you know, you knew up, you grew up in the 80s when? And a slideshow of pop culture references scroll through. Or, 15 things from the 80s you couldn't get away with now. Like if you agree, you know? I mean, to me, this type of aggressive nostalgia, it's a form of brainwashing. And it's not anything new, by the way. I mean, in the east of Eden, Steinbeck talked about this when uh, two old timers mourned the future as 1899 rolled around to 1900 and one says the other oh but strawberries will never taste as sweet and the thighs of women have lost their clutch which ah it's such a good line I mean (laughs) these are these are two guys that think that these things are going to change but what he's doing I mean he's basically saying that I mean some things are never going to change. Uh, Strawberries will always taste like strawberries and the thighs of women will always be the thighs of women. Now the 1980s and East of Eden aside, the romanticism of the 50s and 60s is an image that has taken hold in our collective unconscious. And this image is dangerous, especially when a large contingent of Americans believe that this time period is the ideal to which we should aspire politicians try and sell us wholesome promises with rhetoric inspired from our connotations of this time period but not the real time period with its nuances but the broad repurposing of it from what television and movies and music has given us thankfully king knows to remind us that everything wasn't so golden in the golden oldies and use the blatant horrific racism to prove his point and even in Jake's first trip to 1959, one of the friendly folk he encounters, one of the good guys, is quick to call someone else a faggot. So I'm glad that King, he makes Jake fall in love with the 1950s. But I don't know, he, he falls in love. I mean, it's not it's, it's not the 50s and the 60s he falls in love. He, he falls in love with Jody. He falls in love with one particular town. Um, and if Jody is everything good about that time period, he contrasts this very very well with dallas um and he makes dallas awful and horrible um and much like dairy was it's everything that's just wrong with this time period okay guys magic and rules less than 30 pages in king introduces us to the means by which jake will travel through time and that's a pantry door This has less in common with Marty McFly's DeLorean and more in common with Alice's rabbit hole or the wardrobe that takes us to Narnia. Though he will later staple um, science fiction conventions to it, doorway guardians, splitting time streams, the logical consequence of altering time, the doorway itself feels more in line with something from J.K. Rowling than William Gibson. Make no mistake, this is not hard sci-fi. The past is treated less like our past and more along the lines of a magical land. And the novel never loses that fairy tale wonder. In this regard, Jake is a knight errant out to save the king and falls for a fair maiden whose love threatens to derail him from his noble quest. And this works on multiple levels, especially when you think about the fact that JFK's presidency was the promise of a new Camelot, he being America's Arthur. Though it has a magical feel to it, the reason the novel is as gripping as it is is because King applies very understandable rules to the time travel itself. When you enter through the doorway, you always enter on the same day, same time, same place. You can make changes to the past that will present um, with revised present, but if you head back to the present and into the past again, it resets whatever changes you made. Though we don't need to know the origins of the door, the rules of the door are essential to the success of the story. The rules provide structure And though the man has the ability to alter the fate of the entire world, knowing about the reset button throws a blanket of tension over the relationship with Sadie. Without the reset, um, it'd be like Superman without the kryptonite. He'd be too powerful. And every moment he spends with Sadie ratchets up the tension all the much more because though he can always try to stop Oswald again if he fails, his love with Sadie is something that can only happen once. Um... But I just, I love the nonchalant way that King introduces the pantry door. I mean, he realizes that he has to get his protagonist into the past somehow, so why not a pantry door at a local diner? It is such a fun, distinct image um, that, like I had said, feels right at home with a wardrobe or a rabbit hole. I mean, it's pure magic, guys. Pure magic. All right. um, So it's time for Easter eggs, so let's start with the big one. Let's start with the big one. Let's get it out of the way. Dairy. And not just dairy. Dairy and the losers. Now since it we've seen dairy again, you know, most notably in Insomnia. But with eleven twenty two sixty three, he takes us back to our dairy, the dairy of the nineteen fifties, before the losers exercised the evil from its veins. The dairy from Insomnia is healthier. But this dairy that we see, it's the mean, old, ugly dairy that we remember. So on page 121, he gives us, There was something wrong with that town. I think I knew it from the first. I took Route 7 when the mile-a-minute highway petered down to an asphalt-patched two-lane and 20 miles or so north of Newport. I came over a rise and saw a dairy hulking on the west bank of the Kenda under a cloud of pollution from god knew how many paper and textile mills all operating under full bore there was an artery of green running through the center of town from a distance it looked like a scar the town around that jagged green belt seemed to consist solely of sooty grays and blacks under a sky that had been stained urine yellow by the stuff billowing from all those smokestacks i drove past Several produce stands with people minding the counters or just standing side of the road and gaping as I drove past look more like inbred hillbillies from Deliverance than Maine farmers. As I passed the last of them, Bower's Roadside Produce, a large mongrel raced out from behind several heaped baskets of tomatoes and chased me drooling and snapping at the sunliner's rear tires. It looked like a misbegotten bulldog. Before I lost sight of it, I saw a scrawny woman in overalls approach it and begin beating it with a piece of board. This was the town where Harry Dunning had grown up, and I hated it from the first. No concrete reason, I just did. The downtown shopping area, situated at the bottom of three steep hills, felt pit-like and claustrophobic. My cherry red Ford seemed like the brightest thing on the street, a distracting and unwelcome, judging by most of the glances it was attracting. splash of color among the black Plymouths, brown Chevrolets, and grim delivery trucks. Running through the center of town was a canal filled almost to the top, of its moss-splotched concrete retaining walls with black water. Not only do we visit Derry, but we revisit the very specifics of It, starting with our dear old friend, Mr. Keene, who I mentioned earlier in the podcast, but I'll get to um, more detail here. Now, for those of you who have only seen the movie It, Mr. Keene played a small but integral role to the novel because Mr. Keene, the drugstore pharmacist, represented the worst of Derry. In fact, as you'll remember from my it review, he is Dairy. He's the personification of the city itself. On the surface, he looks normal, but with a closer look, he's rotten underneath. He's a mean-spirited man who took pleasure out of Eddie Casbrack's pain, and it's perfect that he is the first character that Jake runs into. Jake will later call him out on his awfulness. The fact that the man is grinning, um, despite of Spider, because of Jake's pain, and Jake rightfully calls him um, the perfect Dairy citizen. Also, because this takes place the same year as the events from It, he truly revisits the dairy that King had given us. You know, what King does in such a short amount of time is wonderful. And he gives it to us on page 122 to 123. I had parked in front of the drugstore and paused to examine the sign in the window. Somehow it sums up my feelings about dairy, the sour mistrust, sense of barely withheld violence, better than anything else. Although I was almost there for two months, and with the possible exception of a few people I happened to meet, disliked everything about it. The sign read, Shoplifting is not a kick or a groove or a gasser. Shoplifting is a crime, and we will prosecute. Norbert Keen, owner and manager. And the thin, bespectacled man in the white smock who was looking out at me just about had to be Mr. Keen. His expression did not say, Come on in, stranger, poke around and buy something. Maybe have an ice cream soda. Those hard eyes and that turned-down mouth said, "'Go away, there's nothing here for the likes of you.'" Part of me thought I was making that up. Most of me knew I wasn't. As an experiment, I raised my hand in a hollow gesture. The man, the white smock, did not raise his in return. I realized that the canal I'd seen must run directly beneath this particular sunken downtown, and I was standing on top of it. I could feel hidden water in my feet thrumming on the sidewalk. It was a vaguely unpleasant feeling, as if this little piece of the world had gone soft. A male mannequin wearing a tuxedo stood in the window of Dairy dressing every day. There was a monocle in one eye and a school pennant in one plaster hand. The pennant read, "Dairy Tigers will slaughter Bangor Rams. Even though I was a fan of school spirit, this struck me as a little over the top. Beat the Bangor Rams, sure, but slaughter them? It was just a figure of speech, I told myself and went in. Uh, you know, and it goes on, and, um... If all of this isn't enough, King starts to name drop the particulars from it. And it's one of those literary experiences where King rewards his audience for um, reading his past fiction, um, which we begin to get on page 128. Um, You want the truth, Jackson? This town stinks. I know what you mean, all those mills. It's a lot more than that. Look around. What do you see? I did as he, as he asked. There was a fellow who looked like a salesman in the corner drinking whiskey sour, but that was not it. Not much, I said. That's the way it is all through the week. The pay is good because there's no tips. The beer joints downtown do do a doing, do a booming business, and we get some folks on Friday and Saturday nights, but otherwise, that's just about it. The carriage trade does its drinking at home, I guess. He lowered his voice further. Soon, he'd be whispering. We had a bad summer here, my friend. Local folks keep it as quiet as they can. Even the newspapers do- doesn't play it up, but there were some nasty works. Murders. Half a dozen, at least, kids. Found one in the Barron's just recently. Patrick Hockstetter, his name was, all decayed. The Barron's? It's this swampy patch that runs right through the center of town. You probably saw it when you flew in. <sighs> um, and then... "'They ought to pave that goddamn thing over. "'It's nothing but stinkwater mosquitoes. "'You'd be doing this town a favor sweeten it up a little bit. "'Other kids found down there?' I asked. "'A serial child murderer would explain "'a lot about the gloom i have been feeling "'ever since I crossed the town line. "'Not that I know, but people say "'that's where some of the disappeared ones went, "'cause that's where all the big "'sewage pumping stations are. "'I've heard people say that there's so many "'sewer pipes under dairy, "'most of them laid in the Great Depression, "'that nobody knows where all of them are. "'And you know how kids are. "'Adventurous,' he nodded emphatically. Right with Ever sharp. There's people who say it was some vag who's moved on. Others say that it was a local man dressed up like a clown to keep from being recognized. The first of the victims, this was last year before I came, they found him at the intersection of Witcham and Jackson with his arm ripped clean off. Denbro was his name, George Denbro. Poor little tyke. He gave me a meaningful look. He was found right next to one of those sewer drains. The ones that dump into the bearings. Um... You know, and and he continues talking about the Corcoran boy. um, Homicidal, you know, clown and a, you know, homicidal maniac and a clown. So, I mean, in clown suit. So, this is crazy. I mean, it's the Barons. (laughs) The killer clown. George Denbro. You know, it's exciting as as playing Stephen King bingo. You know, I mean, like I said, he even gives us the deep cut of the Corcorans. So, when I saw that King goes back to Derry, he goes back To dairy, And what is going home without visiting old friends? He doesn't have to do it, guys. He really doesn't have to. I tell you, when I first read this book and Jake stops at the edge of the barrens, my heart stopped. All he does is mention a boy with taped-up glasses and a girl with red hair. It shouldn't mean anything but to any fan who was in the know, we all know that he isn't merely describing any old boy with glasses, any old girl with red hair. We are in Dairy, after all. It is 1958. Last time we spent time in Dairy this year, we spent time with a boy with taped up glasses and a girl with red hair. Surely King was not about to do what appeared what he was gonna do. And then he goes and does it. 25 years, guys, 25 years after we waved them goodbye, Richie Tozier and Beverly Marsh waltz back into our lives, and this scene is transcendent. Now, I've spoken at length about it. You know my thoughts on these two characters. But to reiterate here, King chooses the two best characters of the losers and the two with the most chemistry with each other. Not only is their return an incredibly emotional experience for fans of IT, but King makes their appearance work not only for us, but for Jake and the story itself. First, their dancing foreshadows the love that Jake will be swept up in, um, and King touches upon the vast cosmic importance that these two uh, bring to highlight how big Jake's own mission is. But enough of my thoughts. Let's check back in with old friends, shall we? Beginning on page 136. There was a little picnic area at the end of the rickety fence between the Kansas Street sidewalk and the drop into the Barrens. It contained a stone barbecue and two picnic tables with a rusty trash barrel standing between them. A portable phonograph was parked on one of the picnic tables. A big black 78 RPM record spun on the turntable. On the grass, a gangly boy in tape-mended glasses and an absolutely gorgeous red-headed girl were dancing. At LHS, we called the incoming freshmen tweenagers, and that's what these kids were, if that. But they were dancing with grown-up grace. Not jitterbugging either. They were swing dancing. I was charmed. But I was also... What? Scared? A little bit, maybe. I was scared for all the time I spent in dairy, but it was something else, too. Something bigger. A kind of awe, as if I had gripped the rim of some vast understanding, or peered through a glass darkly you understand, into the actual clockwork of the universe. Because you see, I had met Christie at a swing dancing class in Lewiston, this was one of the tunes we had learned to later, in our best year, six months before the marriage and six months after, we had danced in competitions, once taking fourth prize in the New England swing dancing competition. Our tune was a slightly slowed down dance mix version of Casey and the Sunshine's Band Boogie Shoes. This isn't a coincidence, I thought, watching them. The boy was wearing blue jeans and a crew neck shirt. She had on a white blouse with the tails hanging over faded red clam dingers. That amazing hair was pulled back in the same impudently cute ponytail Christy had always worn when we danced competitively, along with her Bobby socks and vintage poodle skirt, of course. This cannot be a coincidence. They were doing the Lindy variation I knew as the hell's a-poppin'. It's supposed to be a fast dance, lightning fast, if you have the physical stamina and grace to pull it off, but they were dancing it slow because they were still learning their steps. I could see inside every move. I knew them all, though I hadn't actually danced any of them in five years or more. Come together, both hands clasped. He stoops a little and kicks with his left foot while she does the same, both them twisting at the waist so that they appear to be going in opposite directions. Move apart, hands still clasped. Then she twirls, first to the left, then to the right, And after 25 years, King lets his characters sing, and their voices are just as distinct and clear as they were in 1986. And I'll freely admit that I welled up when Bev says, Beep, beep, Richie. God, the whole scene is charged and hyper aware. It crackles with energy. From Bev sensing a kinship with Jake simply because they recognize that they're the heroes of the respective stories, to lines like the one on page 140. When he writes, they looked at each other and something passed between them. This is Bev and Richie. They looked at each other and something passed between them. It was impossible to know just what, yet I felt sure of two things. They had sensed an otherness about me that went way beyond just being a stranger in town, but unlike the yellow card man, they weren't afraid of it. Quite the opposite, they were fascinated by it. I thought those two attractive, fearless kids could have told me some stories if they wanted to. I've always remained curious about what those stories might have been I mean this is big I mean aren't the losers the greatest quartet that he's ever created so to see them again in this in between chapter between their two encounters with the clown referencing Ben the turtle it's just special and King knows it and he ends this beautiful little chapter by wrapping it up with a beautiful little bow, page 145. Oh, to hell with that, they were beautiful. For the first time since I'd topped the rise on Route 7 and saw a dairy hulking on the west bank of the Kenda I was happy. That, that was a good feeling to go on, so I walked away from them, giving myself the old advice as I went, Don't look back, never look back. How often do people tell themselves after an experience that is exceptionally good or exceptionally bad? Often, I suppose, and the advice usually goes unheeded. Humans were built to look back. That's why we have swivel joint in our necks. I went half a block and turned around thinking they would be staring at me. But they weren't. They were still dancing. And that was good. You know, I mean, King is not really writing about Jake in this moment. He's telling himself he can never go back. because, And because humans are built to look back, that's why we get to see one more, possibly last visit, with these two beloved King characters from his canon. And even when Jake walks away from them, I mean, he's not finished. I mean, he, he gives us the um, Kitchener Ironworks and the hint of the evil that's still alive and sleeping within Derry um, from pages 177 to, to 180. I won't read it, but, um, I mean, King King knows where he is here. He knows what we want out of it, and, and he gives it to us. So our time that we spend in Derry, um, completely unnecessary. He didn't have to do it, but he did, and I'm so grateful for it. So um, the the second Easter egg is Magic Doors. Um, This is clearly not the first magic door that King has given us. Um, Most often they are found in the page of the Dark Tower series. Number three is the Plymouth Fury. When Jake steps into the past, one of the cars he first spots is a Plymouth Fury. This is also the same make and model as Christine. Number four, Castle Rock is mentioned. Number five, Juniper Hill, the mental institution where Henry Bowers had uh, stayed, that is also referenced. Number six, Shawshank. Harry, uh, the janitor, his father is in Shawshank for the murder of his family. Number seven, Haven. After Harry's family is massacred in Derry, he goes to live in Haven, a town first mentioned in It, then later seen thoroughly as the setting as the Tommyknockers. Haven will later go on to be the setting for the long-running Stephen King universe-inspired sci-fi show by the same name. Number eight, June 19th, 1999. This is a date when the Vermont nuclear reactor blows up in the alternate timeline. It's also the day that Stephen King was hit by a car in real life. And Stephen Kingisms. First, AA. Uh, Jake's ex-wife attends AA, um, This is something that we see from a lot of our characters. I'm currently reading uh, Dr. Sleep right now, and partially that is Stephen King's ode to AA and and, and how it can help people. Number two, teachers. King has written of teachers before, but never like this. Now, um, famously, King had been an English teacher before making it as a published author, and because he writes about what he knows, he tends to write about authors. Um, But he's also touched upon teachers before. Jack Torrance was a teacher. Johnny Smith was a teacher. Thad Beaumont was a teacher. But this is the first time that he's able to write about teaching. Jake Epping um, slash George is the first real teacher in his works. And through this character, King is able to reflect on his days within the classroom, the joy of teaching, the bond that forms with the students, the noble life worth living. For a novel about time travel... I believe that his function as a teacher is important because what do teachers do but shape the future? One child at a time. King nails the moment that must have mattered to him in the classroom when he writes, Want to know the best part of teaching? Seeing that moment when a kid discovers his or her gift, there's no feeling on earth like it. Or when Mimi summarizes the importance of good teachers. Artistic talent is far more common than the talent to nurture artistic talent. Any parent with a hard hand can crush it, but to nurture it is more difficult. Of Mice and Men. I don't recall if King has referenced this novel before, but he certainly used elements from of both mice and men, I'm sorry, of, of, of mice and men in his stories, most notably the stand and the talisman. Both Tom Cullen and Wolf are reminiscent of Lenny, whose role is played in a novel by Mike in George's play. And uh laughing at the unfunny joke, um, that can be found here um within within the book as well. Stephen King often has his characters laughing um hysterically when another character says or does something um and and they just tend to not be funny. So okay guys, uh we're approaching almost two hours now. Um I think that's time for me to to tap out. This is a beautiful novel. I, I just at the end of the day, that's that's just what I wanna say. I love 11, 63. sixty three. It is great. Um, it's definitely a highlight of of Stephen King's collection, probably in the top five. Um, and in his latter half of his career, this it's just it's just it's just proof. It's just proof that he definitely still has it. And I mean, it's more than still has it. I mean, he's churning out some of his better books. I mean, Revival is an incredible examination on life and death. Um, Eleven twenty two. It's a great look at love. And it's a great message to just appreciate what you have while you have it, because you never know what's going to happen. So, even though this man can travel through time, he can't—he can't change the past. It's incredible. It's just great. It's great. It's a great book. Um, I am thoroughly in love with it. Um, I'm happy that it exists. I'm looking forward to the upcoming adaptation. And um, that's kind of—that's that, all that I, I have to say about 112263. So with that said, um, in terms of time travel, let's, let's close uh, the, the past and the present. Let's look ahead to the future. Uh, next week, um, we're gonna be visiting again with old friends. This, this week, we revisited some friends um, from Derry. And speaking of magic doors, we're gonna travel through one more magic door, guys, uh, back into mid-world, back into the past, um, to, to, to visit with our friends, uh, the Great Quartet. The Gunslingers, um, as we once more meet up with Roland and Jake and Eddie and Susanna and Oi, um, in between the events of Wizard and Glass and Wolves of the Kala with the, um, oh, it's not part of the Dark Tower series, but it is supplemental reading material, and I do believe that should be read after the events of the Dark Tower, but this is, uh, wind through the keyhole so may you have long days and pleasant nights and i will see you here next time where m-o-o-n spells stephen king